Today's podcast episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Visit ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator to try ZipRecruiter for free today. Recovery Elevator episode 164. The overall force of alcohol is destructive in our lives. That's why we come to podcasts like this. That's why we go to meetings. That's why we look for treatment. Because even if we're in denial, we understand on some level that this is really having really harmful to us in a lot of aspects of our lives. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, it's been 1,285 days since my last drink. On today's podcast, we've got Ed. He's 39 years old, lives in Los Angeles, and at the time of the recording, he's been sober for 11 days. And before we get to our topic, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me. I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. As I mentioned earlier, Ed, the gentleman I interview on today's podcast, he's been sober for 11 days at the time of the recording. However, he mentions in his interview that he's been working his program with Naltrexone for about five years. And before we hear from Ed, I want to share with you guys some of the emails that I got about listeners who are using Naltrexone or Camprol or some of these other medications that have been approved for maintenance or abstinence from alcohol. Now, I do not have personal experience with these medications. And let me look at my list of credentials real quick. I'm good at mini golf. I can run backward really fast, surprisingly fast. But no, doctor, psychologist, medical professionals, and none of that is on my list of credentials. So you need to do your own research on this. But what I've set out to do during the Recovery Elevator podcast is bring resources to the table. There are so many ways to get sober that I'm personally curious and interested about what works for who. In places like Scandinavia, more specifically Finland, medications are a common treatment for alcoholism. Currently in the United States of America, roughly around 2 to 3% of medical professionals have prescribed these medications to people with drinking problems or alcoholics or people with enhanced dopamine receptors, aka EDR. And when I say these medications, I'm referring to three of them. Acamprosate, which is Camprol, disulfiram, which is Anabuse, and Anabuse is the one that basically gives you an instant hangover the instant you drink. And the third one is naltrexone. This can also be called Revia and come in an injection called Vivitrol. Naltrexone blocks brain opioid receptors, which eliminates the euphoria associated with drinking alcohol. So I'm curious, does this stuff work? I had asked for user experiences from listeners, and that's what I got. This first one is from Matt. He says he was prescribed naltrexone at a detox center in 2017. The next five months were the best physically and mentally he's experienced in years. He says spirituality and community are not there yet. Matt says, Naltrexone is part of my recovery diet. I was told that this drug would reduce cravings and all but eliminate the positive effects of alcohol. 
Does it actually reduce cravings? I don't know. Would it render alcohol non-intoxicating? I don't know. I'm probably benefiting from a placebo effect, but I feel great. Matt goes on to say, if I had to do a pie chart, I'm not sure if naltrexone is a sliver or a huge slice of my reborn positivity. I don't care. I know I'm happy and I know I am progressing forward. This next one is from Randy and he talks about his experience with Camprol or a Camprosate. Now Camprol is not completely understood, but it appears to modulate and normalize alcohol disrupted brain activity, particularly in the GABA and glutamate neurotransmitter systems. When ingested, Camprol does not cause sickness, unlike disulfiram or anabuse, but it is said to reduce cravings for alcohol. And here's what Randy said. Hey Paul, I've been on Camprol in periods since summer of 2016. It was critical in making my second attempt at recovery significantly more successful because no post-acute withdrawals were present, and once I detoxed, I was able to focus on mind and spirit much sooner and without the agitation. Randy also says, it was a game changer in my recovery in conjunction with a treatment program and abstinence. Randy also mentions, after relapse, I hardly felt a buzz after drinking quite a bit in one sitting, and I hadn't drank for 515 days. The doctor said that was most likely a result of having Camprol in the system. This next one comes from Johan or Johan. I started taking naltrexone in early 2017. I was doing some research on anabuse and came across naltrexone. I then asked my doctor if I could be prescribed naltrexone. My doctor hadn't even heard about it. My doctor did some research and said, hey, let's give it a try. At the start, naltrexone was a game changer and I don't use that word lightly. I wasn't necessarily racking up sober time or hitting weeks or months of sobriety, but I found myself drinking less and less and I definitely didn't enjoy it nearly as much. In fact, I didn't really enjoy it at all. And that was kind of the problem. There was always this huge letdown in my life. Even though I was on naltrexone, I still looked forward to going out with my friends on the weekend, getting hammered at the bars. But I would drink, and man, I paid a lot of money for these drinks, but I never got drunk. So after those nights, I'd wake up the next day and wonder what the hell I'm really doing. My goal is still to move forward without alcohol permanently, but quitting drinking's hard, and I'll take progress anywhere I can get it. Okay, and now let's hear from Ed. It's a fantastic interview, but before we hear that, let's hear from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Ed, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. Thanks for uh, talking to me today. Yeah, Ed, thanks for joining us. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Well, I haven't had a single drink in 11 days, but I've been using sort of my recovery strategy that we're going to talk about today, naltrexone, for going on six years now. Perfect. And listeners, about four four or five episodes ago, 
I said, I want to hear from you guys who are using Naltrexone, who've had success with it, who don't like it. And I got six emails back and I loved your story, Ed. And I said, hey, let's get Ed on the podcast. So I'm excited to hear about your experience through Naltrexone. And again, for listeners, naltrexone is something that it's an, it's an opioid receptor blocker. So it doesn't quite give the same effect, the same euphoria that we drink. And, it, and you know it better than I do. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's really interesting to me. And I read a stat that only two to 3% of physicians actually prescribe it. So again, let's get to that in a bit, but let's talk about you know, the pathway that led you to exploring a, a more of a, a medical treatment toward to, to your drinking. Yeah, and, and talk to us about, uh, oh gosh, I'm getting way off track. Um, give listeners a little background about yourself, Ed, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Sure. I'm going to be 40 pretty soon. I am a research scientist. I have my PhD in molecular biology. For fun, I'm a little bit boring sometimes because I have two children under two, although it's not boring for me for certain. Um, so I love to play with them uh, every every chance that I get. And nowadays, I really enjoy work as well. Research is a very entertaining profession to have. You're always learning something new. And I, I really enjoy what it is that, that I do for a living. My drinking history, I think that it started pretty early uh, when I was... 15, I had my first drink. A friend of mine and I got a couple of 40s of King Cobra. He had a, about a glass and I finished the rest of the two 40s. And so it was probably a pretty early indication that something was a little bit different about the way that I drink. But it didn't really take hold of me, I would say, until I was about 25 uh, when I'm looking back now. And then I drank pretty hard for about 10 years before I found naltrexone. In that 10 years, I did try other methods for curtailing my drinking. I went to a couple of AA meetings and I wasn't, I wasn't able to stick with that. And so that, I guess, wasn't a solution for me at that time. And Ed, I'm so glad you said the word King Cobra. I need to share a quick anecdote with you. <laughs> um, me and a couple buddies, we put, I mean, like in an afternoon before the lip sync battle, we did a, a lip sync slash dance to the sticks, Mr. Roboto. We got second place to the Chapman University, like dance squad, the hip hop dance squad. So a, like yeah. no one's going to beat them anyways. We got a $50 grand prize and we bought 24 King Cobras, 40 ounce King Cobras, uh, stashed the mini fridge. So we're on the same page there. And, uh, money goes really far with King Cobra. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. And we, we've got something in common also, Ed, just want to fill you in. I almost uh, got my PhD in molecular bio from MIT, my oh. safety, yeah, my safety school, but, uh, I decided to go the more general <laughs> studies route at a liberal arts university in California where you pretty much get uh, straight A's if you go to class. So cool. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's pretty impressive. Actually. I, I did, I didn't get accepted at MIT, nor did I apply. So that that's really cool. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, and and so when did the naltrexone come into place? Maybe you said it. I apologize. I was taking some notes. When did you first get on naltrexone? Yeah, so I had been, like I said, I had been drinking hard for um, about ten years, where things were getting were getting worse and worse. And the funny thing is that I, I was still in massive denial. And looking back, I don't even understand how I could have been in denial at that point. I was falling downstairs. I would regularly drink so much that I would 
piss my own bed on the weekend. And that's a little, I mean, that is painful for me to admit, but I don't mind because I know that other people out there are having the same experience. And yet I was, I was still in denial. I didn't believe that I had a, a real drinking problem. At some point, you know, there were times when I thought, okay, I have a drinking problem, but it's too far for anything to help or for any program to help me. Another common thing I think that us alcoholics do. Uh, But what pushed me to find naltrexone was not actually looking for recovery, but what I at the time called hangovers, and now I recognize as pretty serious withdrawal symptoms, Mm -hmm. were were kicking in probably every Monday where I could not get any work done. I was shaky during the day. And it would last until Tuesday, and then I'd feel a little better on Wednesday and maybe get some work done and feel better on Thursday. And then, you know, Wednesday and Thursday, I'd start drinking again, of course. So I'd only have a a day or two off of drinking every week, and during that day or two, I was completely hungover or withdrawing from alcohol. And so my entire week was either drunk or hungover. And so I, I did some web searching for medication that I could use to not slow down my drinking, but to help me with my hangover symptoms, right? And it's a very, uh, looking back, it's a very selfish thing. My drinking was impacting everyone around me, and I really was only worried about my hangover symptoms. And I found uh, an online forum about the Sinclair method, which is a method used for using naltrexone to decrease your drinking. And I thought, well, if I can just decrease my drinking a little bit, then maybe my hangover symptoms will get a little better and I'll, my life will go on and I'll be a quote-unquote normal drinker, the, the hope that we all have, I guess. And so that's, that's how I happened upon it initially, was just out of a purely selfish desire uh, to not be hungover when I wasn't actively drinking. Yeah, so let's just talk to me about the the prescribing of these meds, that process. Did you go to a medical professional and probably like, have you tried to cut back? And you're like, yeah, I've tried these. It's not really working. He's like, what about AA? And I tried AA. It's not really my bag. Well, what about naltrexone? Because I imagine there were some other things that he recommended or you tried before you got to naltrexone. Am I right on that? Or did you guys just go right to naltrexone? No, you're 100% right. So I had done, because I'm a a researcher, I had done my research on naltrexone and I had printed out a couple of articles by doctors and people who recommend uh, the use of naltrexone, even though it's not particularly widespread, as you noted. And I went in there and I, I was looking for some help. And so I talked to him and I said, yeah, I tried AA and, and it didn't really work for me. And I'd, I'd really like to give this a try. And he was a little bit cautious about it because he didn't know that much about it. But he said, you know what, if this is something that you want to try and it could be positive for your health, uh, I don't see any issue with it. You're not on any other medications that would be contraindicated. So I'm happy to give this to you to see what it's like. Gotcha. So you were the one that did the research. You walked into the office and said, hey, what do you know about naltrexone? How do you feel about me going on naltrexone? Is that what I'm hearing? Yep, that's exactly right. And, you know, that was a scary moment for sure, because there's this idea that if you walk into your doctor's office, you're labeling yourself an alcoholic for the rest of your life. And that's a fear that I had to get over. But yeah, I did it and, and it worked out. Before I forget this thought that just popped into my head, I got to say it and I want to get your two cents on this. So I have sure. not used naltrexone. I've not used isulfiram, uh-huh. which is antabuse, uh, camprol, but part of me wants this stuff to work. And the reason why is for some reason, there's still a debate out there. 
uh, that is, does alcoholism a disease, right? Or is it a moral failing, right? Yeah. Even though in 1956, the American Medical Association classified alcoholism as a disease. So for the medical community yeah. to reaffirm that classification, you know, why isn't there a pill? If it is a disease, like other diseases that we have out there, there's a pill, there's a cure. So if we find a pill to cure alcoholism, then boom, that pretty much squashes the debate whether addiction or addiction is a disease or a moral failing. What, what's your two cents on that? I think that's a great question, Paul, because um, it really had an impact on my own view of alcoholism. I think the debate is a little silly because alcoholism to me is definitely a disease. You can see that it runs in families. It's in particular countries and, and not others. There's a strong genetic basis for alcoholism. And, and, and yet there is constantly this idea that it is some sort of, of moral failing. And I think that's just people who don't have the affliction, who don't have the disease, saying, why don't you just drink less? That's exactly what I do. And then there are people who maybe have alcoholism and they're able to rein it in on their own. That's not me. And I, maybe they have the same opinion. I think that part of the issue is that alcoholism is a spectrum disease where many of us come to it in different ways. Some people, I don't know, I guess are addicted to the high, whereas some people are using alcohol as a coping mechanism. And some people, who knows, uh, there are all kinds of different reasons that people find themselves addicted to a very addictive substance, alcohol. But once, once we're in it, we all need to, I think, band together to try to figure out the way out. <laughs> Yeah, I love how you said it's a spectrum disease and there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And oftentimes, 12-step recovery is kind of a one-step-fits-all. Go in the rooms, do the work, do the steps, get a sponsor, and, and you're done. Yeah, so I love how you said it's, it's perspective, the realm of how addiction can take hold. Um, and, and the reason why I'm behind the microphone is to attack the stigma surrounding alcohol you know, and addiction. Yeah. And I, I think if uh, this is another food for thought that I want to get your opinion on and your two senses. So I think if, if, if naltrexone were just you know, worldwide accepted as treatment for addiction for alcoholism, then that would squash the debate whether it's disease or not. However, you know, I've been to hundreds of 12-step meetings, and I don't think I've heard the word naltrexone once. You know, where do you think yeah. the disconnect is from the scientific community with the recovery community, the 12-step, and more specifically the 12-step community? Oh, man, that is, an excellent, that is an excellent question. I think there hasn't been enough research on alcoholism. I think there hasn't been enough research on which recovery methods work. I think it's a very difficult question to tackle because like you and I were saying, as a spectrum disease, different different sort of therapies or strategies are going to work for different people and maybe at, at different times. And, and so it becomes very difficult to say, you know, I've read statistics that I don't know if I believe that AA works for 5% or 10% of people or that naltrexone works for a similar number of people and that just trying to quit on your own works for the same number of people. But I think it's extremely difficult to get a handle on those numbers because if somebody goes to an AA meeting one time and never again, they're maybe not part of any particular study and same with naltrexone and, and same with all of these things. And so, so I definitely think that addiction being such a big problem, especially in the United States, is very much understudied. And that's the disconnect between the research and the, and the addiction community. I would like to say as an aside that I know that my interview might be polarizing to some people because I didn't immediately 
go for complete abstinence, which is sort of like that person who still eats chicken but calls themselves a vegetarian. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but I am now working. Yeah, choiceitarian. I'm I'm now working toward total sobriety. Um, so that's one thing. But but also I would never personally. Well, I'm not I'm not a medical doctor, so I, I don't recommend medications to anybody for anything. But in my own personal opinion, I would hate it if my interview led somebody who had long-term sobriety to try to drink normally again, because in my experience, that is not what naltrexone does for you. Like you said, it blocks the opioid receptors, and so you don't get the same kind of rush, but it doesn't magically cure you from being an alcoholic. So if you don't mind, let me just tell you a little bit about that. When I first started taking it, there's sort of a honeymoon phase where uh, it works extremely, extremely well for a week or two. And you get this really eye-opening experience where you're like, wait a minute, this is maybe a little bit more like other people drink. Because instead of drinking four bottles of wine in a night or going through an entire bottle of whiskey, all of a sudden you're only drinking a quarter of a bottle of whiskey or uh, two bottles of wine. Uh, in a night, and you feel like, wow, I've got this completely under control. And that's how I felt for a really long time. I was like, I've got it fixed. But looking, especially more recently, as I'm working toward total sobriety, looking at how normal people actually drink is quite eye-opening. So my wife, my wife is not an alcoholic in the slightest sense. And when she wants to have a glass of wine, she pours herself a normal-sized glass as opposed to the kinds that I used to pour myself, and she almost never even finishes that, that one glass. And so doing some rough back-of-the-envelope calculations in my head, I think that in my old days, I could drink more in a night than she would drink in an entire year. And so wow. naltrexone helps you move toward opening your eyes, I would say, and breaking. For me, it really broke the spell that alcohol had over me. But then there was a lot of work that I had to do to try to disentangle alcohol from my life because it had become such a core part of my personality in a really sad way. It was part of who I was and how I interacted with the world. And that's something that took me a really long time to get rid of. And now that I'm working, I think getting closer every day to completely letting go of alcohol, I can see that I don't want it in my life at all. And so the idea that it makes you a normal drinker is partly true because it makes you more normal than the alcoholic that you used to be, in my experience. But for somebody who is sober to try to use it to drink again like a normal person, I think it's a, a really bad idea because you're still, you still have the same biology. You still have the same reasons to reach for the bottle, and it may temper it a little bit, but it's still not a positive force in your life, I would say. Ed, there's so much to comment on right there, and I'm so glad <laughs> you said you don't recommend to go out and drink again because all alcoholics, people with EDR, enhanced dopamine receptors, we have an obsession to return to be a normal drinker. So if, if you yeah. could bold, underline, highlight in audio format, yeah, yeah I can, can't reiterate that <laughs> enough is – yeah, I don't, Ed, and Ed's not suggesting it, and I don't suggest, hey, I've been sober for a year. Well, let's try naltrexone. You can drink like a normal person. That's no. not it at all. And you've That's heard. That's not it at all. Yeah, and you've heard Ed say, I think three times now, that he's working on complete abstinence, working on total sobriety. And talk to us about that. It sounds like, you know, you, um, you, your last drink was 11 days ago. It doesn't sound like the wheels have totally come off. How come you're wanting right. to make the, the next step into full sobriety? That's an excellent question. As 
the grip that alcohol has on me lessens and lessens. It's because I've, I've worked on a lot of these things, the reasons I use alcohol. Uh, and so I feel like I've made a lot of uh, progress in that realm. But as that happens, every drink that I have becomes less and less fun. And at this point, I feel like I'm not getting anything out of it at all. And as alcoholics, we know that always the net balance, the the overall force of alcohol is destructive in our lives. That's why we come to podcasts like this. That's why we go to meetings. That's why we look for treatment. Because even if we're in denial, we understand on some level that this is really having really harmful to us in a lot of aspects of our lives. But as the harm has been reduced through my use of naltrexone, the sort of things that I enjoyed about it, which we have to be frank about, there are things that we all enjoyed about alcohol, the high or the sociability or whatever. Those have also been significantly reduced. I think in terms of social interaction, it's because I've learned to be social without the use of alcohol. In terms of the high, the high is, is largely gone. And so now I'm left with why am I, why would I ever open a bottle in the first place, if I'm not getting high, if I'm not using it to interact with my friends, because I can do that without it. Now I'm just drinking, you know, a large amount of calories. Now I'm just uh, making myself mildly, maybe hungover the next day and less present with my children. And that's something my children are a big motivation for me these days, sure. for sure. You know, I want to be 100% present with them at all times. And even if I'm a little bit hungover, and I can get through it. You know, I can take care of them. I can take them to the park. I can whatever. I'm not going to notice those small moments, those things that they do, because my mind is not going to fully be able to be there because I, I don't feel 100%. And that's not something that I want. And at 11 days, I've had a few of these 11-day stretches. I wish they were longer, and I'm working on that. I feel great. You know, I feel incredible. And I don't want to go back to having even one more night with half a bottle of wine because it's not worth it to me. Yeah, oh, gosh, again, so many questions. So where are you at with cravings? So it, I'm wondering, I'm like, you got 11 days. Why don't you just keep riding the train, the sobriety train? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah what, how come you don't just keep going? That's another plus and minus of using naltrexone, I got to say. So my cravings are definitely greatly decreased. I don't think about alcohol on a daily basis. I don't want to have a drink tonight. I don't want to have a drink tomorrow night, the, the physical cravings for me, at least at this point are gone, but because the, the cost, the, the harm that comes with it is also greatly reduced. Then it becomes easier to say, well, okay, if my wife is having a drink or if there's a social, I can have a little and I'm going to be okay. And I will be okay, but I won't be a hundred percent. I won't be my best self. And so there's a, you know, it brings down the cravings, it brings down your desire, it brings down the hold alcohol has on you, but simultaneously bringing down the harm that is done, at least for me. And I think we should talk about, I have a couple of stories of friends I've recommended this to who it did not go well for, but at least for me, bringing all of that down at the same time makes me want it less, but makes the consequences less as well. And so then it's easier to say, I'll just have a little bit, but the consequences are still there for sure. Sure. And I'm curious if you could share about your friends who didn't go well for. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was very surprised because six months into my use of naltrexone, I thought I had found this amazing, just this, you know, water of life, this, this, this pill that could really turn my life around. And I had some, you know, all my friends were drinkers 
because, you know, as a drinker, you don't like to be criticized by non-drinkers, so you surround yourself with a bunch of drunks, right? And drunks are great people, too, and so that's another reason why I had all drunk friends. But a couple of them that I knew that I had talked to about their struggle with alcohol, who maybe had had some middle to long-term sobriety through the use of AA or by themselves up to a year, and then had gone back to drinking, I contacted them. And I was like, you guys, I've I've got something really great here. I did some research and I found this medication that has really helped me a lot. I think I contacted four people. Three of them immediately were like, no, I'm not interested. Just not interested at all. And they continue to drink. And that's hmm. great. They get to do what they want. Sure. One person did decide to talk to his doctor and he got a prescription and he started to use it, but he was not particularly religious about it. And so he used it on some nights oh, and not on other nights. There we go. He decided, right, that he wanted. So that's one thing that I've definitely done is that in the Sinclair method, we have sort of a, a golden rule where you have to you have to do it every time mm-hmm. and you have to take your medication well before you decide that you're going to drink because the way that the brain works, if alcohol gives you the dopamine reward that you want, sometimes, but not other times, intermittent reward is actually more addictive than constant reward. And so if you get that boost of dopamine, if you get that good feeling only every third time or every fourth time, that can be just as addictive or more addictive than if you get it every time because you're still searching for that high. And so I haven't, I haven't done a a postmortem with him. I know that he stopped taking it all together and I wish him the best. I hope that he, you know, he never was as bad a drinker as I was. I, I you know, I know some who are, but not many. I was a pretty low bottom drunk. And so I hope he can work it out on his own. Maybe he doesn't need it. And maybe that's the reason he stopped. But I, I think that he was trying in my outside opinion that he was trying to sometimes be normal and sometimes really enjoy that high. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why it didn't work for him. Yeah. Insert major cognitive dissonance with that. And that's yeah. actually the next question that I had for you. And you kind of went down that path is, have you had a night like, you know, I got some buddies from MIT coming to visit some buddies from college. It's my wife's birthday. It's my birthday. I'm just not going to take the yeah. pill. I've actually never done that, but that's, that's a half truth. So I've never done that, but I have, I've drank more than I wanted to while using the pill for sure many times. And at some point you can kind of, if you drink enough, you can get a little back into that territory of, of getting the high for sure. Mm-hmm. And so I've never, I've never broken the rule of not taking my medication before I drink, but I have pushed it too far for sure. And that's, that's an ugly thing that I'm not, I'm not proud of, but it's another, another one of those drawbacks I think of, of using a medication is the alcoholic part of your brain might find a way to follow the rules, let's say, and, and still get the high that you're looking for. Now, is this a tablet that you take every morning at the same time? Or is is if you know you drink, you take it three hours before you're going to drink. And if you're not going to drink that day, just don't take a tablet. What does that look like? So some people do, you know, it's been used in different ways. And some people take it as a shot. There's a a shot that you can get that lasts a month. Vivitrol, right? Yeah, that's right. And I've never done that. But I think that 
that one people have really good success with because then there's no way that you can get out of having it in your system. There's some people who take it every day because they say that it reduces cravings overall. And then I've never done that either because I feel like it makes my, the, the medication itself makes me a little bit fuzzy, which I don't enjoy. And that's another reason to get completely off of alcohol. So I don't have to take the medication anymore. Mm-hmm. But for me, what I've always done is to take it one hour before if I knew I was going to drink. Okay. Well, God, that's that's kind of ironic where you would quit drinking, so then you could quit naltrexone. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I know, right? <laughs> I know. I hey, we thought of it that way. <laughs> our train of thinking is, is, is not always the uh, exactly linear. Um, but there's another yeah. criticism of naltrexone that I'm interested to hear uh-huh. your perspective on. And in my opinion, is one of the reasons why addiction and alcoholism is so confusing is because it's a three-part disease. It's physical, mental, and spiritual. And it actually, in the order that it kills us, it's spiritual, and then, ment- then mental, and then physical. And the healing is the reverse. And with naltrexone, yeah. I've heard and I've read, I can't comment with personal experience, but it's really only addressing the physical component. Um, and there's still the mental and the spiritual component of the disease that remains untreated. What, what's your thought on that? I 100% agree with that. And I think that that's another reason why people may not find utility out of it. For me, I, I, looking back, for me, I needed that physical part to be broken because it was so strong over me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the, over the course of the last six years, I've worked very hard on the mental and the spiritual part of it. You know, dis- like I said, disentangling alcohol from my brain as part of my personality, you know, like when I was drinking hard, I had a motorcycle and I thought I was really cool and it all went together with drinking whiskey and, you know, acting like a tough guy at MIT. Right. You know, (laughs) do they exist out there? uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess, I guess a few, but, uh, (laughs) and that's been something that's been also very difficult. And that's something, you know, the idea that it's a pill that's going to cure your alcoholism, that's another reason why I think that's a myth, because you do need to continue to work on the physical and, uh, I'm sorry, on on the mental and the spiritual aspects of why it is that you were drawn to alcohol or why it is that, I guess, you know, maybe you were drawn to alcohol because everyone in our society drinks alcohol. Why is it that alcohol gained so much momentum with you? What did it fulfill for you that you can hopefully find in sources that are that are not an addictive drug, you know? And that's definitely something that's been difficult for me. I think it's difficult for all of us, but I'm I'm proud to say I've made a lot of progress in that area and that's another reason why I feel confident going forward that I can extend this 11 days much longer, hopefully forever. You said the word that I just wrote down is it's the cliche we hear in 12-step rooms. Ironically, I'm going to apply it to naltrexone. It's progress, not perfection. And I'm going to read yeah. uh, the first line of the email that you sent to me on February 5th. It said, I found an naltrexone and slowly but steadily my life has changed completely. My career is recovering and I have two beautiful children. And so, yeah, there's tremendous progress. And for some people that they don't even see the progress and it's just like the spinning hamster wheel. So perhaps naltrexone would work for them. And, and maybe, yeah, Yeah. it sounds like you eventually want to be completely abstinent from alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's been a little bit difficult to gauge, um, but I can see it also reflected in other people. It's a constant struggle. And I think it's not unique to alcoholics. You know, everybody struggles with social interaction. Well, not everybody. A lot of people struggle with social interaction. Mm -hmm. A lot of people struggle with these things. But we as alcoholics found a quick way to solve it, and now we have to give up that way and 
redevelop strategies for interacting with people or our self-conception of who we are and how we fit into the world. You know, when I was at MIT, I definitely made the least of that experience. I was able to graduate, but when I, it makes me really cringe when I look back at how many opportunities I had that I completely squandered because I was hungover. I finished, and that's all I can say. But I really, I think I could have made so much more out of that incredible opportunity that really the sober version of me had gotten for myself. When I was in college, when I drank, I definitely was a hard drinker, but I, for that reason, I stayed away from it, and I worked really hard. And then when I, so I earned my way in, into MIT as a graduate student, and then my drinking really took off, and I squandered a lot of the opportunities that I had set up for myself. And that's a really difficult thing. Like I said, my career is recovering now because I'm not hungover during the week, because I'm not drinking all the time. I'm able to think clearly, uh, which is very important for every line of work. I'm able to get a lot more done, and that's been very positive for sure. Ned, I got one more question before we hit the rapid fire round. Pretty much every decision I made at the tail end of my drinking, and, and still in sobriety, it's just life in general, was based on fear. Do you think it's fear that's holding you back from just saying, I'm on day 11, I'm going to make it 12, and I'm going to make it stick? Well, I'm hoping that nothing's holding me back. I really am going to make it stick this time, but there's definitely fear in there. You know, it's a little sad as an alcoholic that you're afraid of what you will be like without drinking altogether. But that's that's the that's how entrenched into your psyche alcohol becomes. It's a relationship, and when you it's not just quitting or withdrawal. You have to break up with alcohol. You know, I was Facebook official with alcohol. I had all these pictures of me drinking True. on Facebook. You know, I love it. I, you know, yeah. other than my wife, it was the most serious relationship um, that I had. And you know, it's it's a difficult thing, and it's a, it's scary. I recognize that it's there, but I know that I'm strong enough to overcome it at this point. Gosh, absolutely. Uh, and, and Ed, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions yes. in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. You just answered. You're ready. So number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? There's so many, but I went on a ski trip with a bunch of grad school friends one time. And after skiing, you know, you like to do, do a little apres ski. The normal drinkers have a beer, maybe two. I went back to the room. I think I finished off three quarters of a bottle of whiskey. I did like a complete jackass. I ended up pissing my bed that night in front of all of my friends, which made for a very awkward morning. And when I think about that, I, I cringe really hard, even to this day. Did you have your sweet motorcycle yet? This is after I crashed my motorcycle, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> oh, the plot thickens. <laughs> was there alcohol yeah. involved in that crash? <laughs> Oh, of course there was. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. Besides when you crash your motorcycle drunk, uh, when was yeah. the oh shit moment indicating that you really can't control your drinking? Other than, other than that experience, you know, I had a bunch of hard drinking friends and we were having a, a party. We worked at a bar together. Don't all of us alcoholics work at a bar at some point <laughs> or another? Fact. <laughs> So we worked at a bar together, and one of my hardest drinking friends was like, hey, everybody, come to the party because we all like to watch Ed get drunk. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm the drunk of the drunks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's pretty good. Uh, next one. <laughs> What's your plan moving forward? So I'm, I'm going to keep working on the, on the mental and the, and the spiritual aspects of this. I'm going to keep listening to your podcast for sure. But my plan moving forward is to really commit to, to being abstinent and to, and to not drink anymore. Because to, to think about it, to really understand 
that alcohol is not a positive influence in my life and that I feel much better and I am much better without it. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? I have to give credit here to an online forum that I found that I don't use that much anymore about the Sinclair Method. And I early on reading stories from other alcoholics who had used naltrexone and who had found some hope, some very valuable stories for people for whom it did not work. Those are incredibly valuable stories. Mm -hmm. And then some for people who it worked very well. That resource early on really helped break the spell that alcohol had over me and helped me in my process of recovery. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received, Ed? This is a cliche of course, but it's a cliche because it's true, which is that you cannot do this alone. And you can't do it with just a medication. You need to reach out for support. You need to hear and understand the stories of other people who've gone through what you've gone through. Like I said before, Alcoholics Anonymous at the time was not right for me. And so unfortunately, I didn't keep going back. I wish that I had. But having a free resource like that uh, is an incredible resource for people. But whatever it is, that works for you. doesn't matter what it is. Try every option. Find other people who've gone through what you're going through right now. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in recovery? I would just say, to reiterate my last point, I think, that alcoholism is a monster because it's so subversive. It comes on slowly in many ways, where by the time you can break through from your denial or you can recognize that you're drinking in ways that your friends are not, it already might be really ingrained in your life and, and hard to get rid of. And so try AA. It's free. Try rational recovery. It's free. Meet up with other people who've gone through what you've gone through. Um, but if those don't work for you, now Trexone helped me quite a lot. Don't give up. If you just have an effort moment where you're like, I'm just going to do this again, you can come back to it. Don't don't just say, well, I was wrong last week. That moment of clarity is not valid. I'm, I'm not really an alcoholic because I had that experience where I said, you know, I, yeah, I went to AA. I was sober for three weeks, but I think I was wrong about that. And it took another seven years before I came back to serious work on my alcoholism. Wow. The addiction aligned to us in our own voice. And seven years later, you came back. And <laughs> before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. Well, you might be an alcoholic if you find yourself in Safeway buying three tall cans of Miller High Life and you look two spots behind you and there's a homeless man buying three tall cans of Miller High Life. That should be an <laughs> opening moment. Oh, that's amazing. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Keep me in the loop um, Absolutely. You know, with your progress and uh, where you're at with things and let me know six months, a year from now if uh, if you are at complete abstinence, you're still making that progression, yep. and just keep in touch. I thank you. Uh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity, Paul. I really, I love your podcast and the good work that you do for all of us. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, and thanks for joining us. So, what's my take on naltrexone? I don't know. I've never tried it. Getting sober is hard. The odds are stacked against us. And if science has found a way to help us get there, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But one thing I can conclude from hearing people's individual stories from Camprol and abuse or naltrexone is it doesn't fill the void left by alcohol. We're not building a community of other like-minded people when on these meds. And most of the people using their meds, their end goal is still the same, to live a life abstinent from alcohol. So there are a lot of different pathways or roadways, trails, and a sobriety. I can only comment on the experience of my own. 
but I wanted to share with you these other ways to get sober. And to ensure this content remain free, please support the sponsor of the podcast, ZipRecruiter. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Thank you.